0: Good morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? O Lord God in heaven, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning. Open our hearts that we might receive all that you have for us. And help us, Lord God, to put it into practice. For I pray it in the precious name of your Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, in the summer of uh, 1980, some years ago now, a reporter from the Miami Herald actually captured the attention and emotions of her readers with a kind of a story that you think about for days and maybe weeks after you read it. It was the story of a young, attractive woman by the name of Judith Bucknell. And I first ran across this disturbing record in a book called No Wonder They Call Him the Savior. The author's description is quite sobering. Let me share it. Judith Bucknell was homicide number 106 that year. She was killed on a steamy June 9th evening, aged 38, weight 109 pounds, stabbed seven times and strangled. But she kept a diary, and had she not kept this diary, perhaps the memory of her would have been buried with her body. But the diary exists, a painful epitaph to a lonely life. The correspondent made this comment about her writings, quote, in her diaries, Judy created a character and a voice. The character is herself, wistful, struggling, weary, and the voice is yearning. Judith Bucknell has failed to connect. Age 38, many lovers, much love offered, none returned. Well, her struggles weren't unusual. She worried about getting old, getting fat, getting married, getting pregnant, and getting by. Judy was the paragon of the confused human being. Half of her life was fantasy, half was a nightmare. Successful as a secretary but a loser at love, her diary was replete with entries such as the following... Where are the men with the flowers and champagne and music? Where are the men who call and ask for genuine, actual dates? Where are the men who would like to share more than my bed, my booze, and my food? I would like to have in my life, once before I pass through my life, the kind of sexual relationship which is part of a loving relationship. But she never did. Judy was not a prostitute. She was not on drugs or on welfare. She never went to jail. She was not a social outcast. She was respectable. She jogged. She hosted parties. She wore designer clothes and had an apartment that overlooked the bay. And she was very lonely. I see people together and I'm so jealous, she writes, I want to throw up. What about me? What about me? And though surrounded by people, she was on an island. Though she had many acquaintances, she had few friends. Though she had many lovers, 59 and 56 months, she had little love. Who is going to love Judy Bucknell? The diary continues, I feel so old, unloved, unwanted, abandoned, used up. I want to cry and sleep forever. Well, a clear message came from her aching words, and though her her body died on June 9th from the wounds of a knife, her heart had died long before that from loneliness. I'm alone, and I want to share something with somebody, her diary said. Now, how many people do you suppose are walking through this life, and especially through this time of quarantine and social distancing, Shackled to the icy hands of loneliness. How many Judy Bucknells are living their lives every single day as if they were invisible? Now, while social distancing right now may be the best way to fight the coronavirus, it may very well exacerbate an already existing epidemic. Loneliness. Recently, I came across a very strange story out of Japan in which dozens of elderly women admitted to crimes of petty theft in the hopes of going to prison. Why? They said, quote, there are always people around, unquote, one of the inmates told the reporter. And I don't feel lonely there. All the lonely people Where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? As I read about the ministry of Christ, and it seems as though this area of Christ's ministry has begun to occupy my thinking more and more lately, I cannot escape the fact that it was these lonely, hurting people that tended to occupy a large amount of his time. Proportionately more, I would say, than occupies my time or quite possibly yours. Remember the description Christ gave to a synagogue full of Jews as he identified his target audience at the inauguration of his public ministry. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, we read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, said Jesus, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind." to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Notice who his target audience was. The poor, the captives, the blind, those who are oppressed. The whole list adds up to people who are intimately acquainted with loneliness. But friends, you and I need to understand that loneliness is no respecter of persons it knows no social boundaries in every segment of society there are people who are excruciatingly lonely from the business executive to the homeless man from the Supreme Court justice to the kid that didn't make the basketball team from the superstar musician to the neglected wife and mother the cries sound the same no matter from where they come the pain is there lost in the crowd of our who cares, who's next world, their voices go unnoticed and unheard. I'm alone, unloved, unwanted, abandoned, used up. Who's going to love me? Jesus will. But the question is, will we? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, And we're going to look at verses 21 to 34 in a few moments. But in my opinion, among the miraculous incidents that occurred during Christ's ministry, there aren't many more intriguing than this one. Sandwiched in the middle of another miracle account, of which Jesus went to raise Jairus' daughter, Mark describes a moment dripping with the power of love. Love so strong that it lifts the shadow of loneliness out of the heart of a first century Judy Bucknell. This is a miracle within the context of a miracle. Ministry interrupted for more ministry. The richness of what we can learn by observing Jesus' response in this situation is absolutely overwhelming. And if we were to live this way, nothing in this world, in our lives, would ever be the same. Not for us, or not for anyone who came in contact with us. So if you've got your Bibles with you right now, let's look at Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet. "'and implored him earnestly, saying, "'My little daughter is at the point of death. "'Please come and lay your hands on her "'so that she will get well and live.' "'And he went off with him, "'and a large crowd was following him "'and pressing in on him. "'And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years "'and had endured much at the hands of many physicians "'and had spent all that she had "'and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse.' After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Well, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Well, you know what I see in this text is that Jesus' pattern of life was so radically different from mine. I mean, we have three different second-hand accounts of what transpired on this occasion. We have Matthew's and Mark's and Luke's. And I've read them over and over, but you know what I'd really like to read? I'd like to read the woman's rendition wouldn't you, in her diary. Anybody in that crowd may have been able to tell that story. But coming from her lips, can you imagine what it must have been like? Like most lonely people, she's practically invisible to this crowd. We don't even know her name, as a matter of fact. Religious traditions have attempted to assign a name to her, Veronica, and Martha possibly have been suggested, maybe her name was Judith. We don't have her diary, but we do have three God-breathed accounts and a creative imagination. I think if this woman were to tell her version, she'd give us plenty to digest about how to deal with those like her who are isolated from society. What was it about the way Jesus interacted with people that they sensed that they were so important to him? That they had value? That they were unconditionally loved? I believe this woman would have some pretty basic things to say to you and me. And I think you and I might walk away just a tad convicted. Maybe even ashamed. Hopefully pierced to the point of repentance because I know I have been, I have an inkling that there's a huge difference between how Jesus dealt with this woman and how I might have, or maybe how you might have. I think if she were telling us her story, she'd say, Russ, and you can fill in your name, the thing that made the difference in my life, what liberated me from my loneliness was the fact that Jesus was available Jesus was available in verse 24 we find Jesus going off with Jairus to heal his daughter and the scripture says he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him now it didn't matter that the streets were crowded or that there were people pushing all over the place it didn't phase him that he was on his way to do one of the most powerful services Of his life, he was about to raise someone from the dead and for a high-ranking official in the hottest church in town. Interruptions just didn't seem to bother Jesus, no matter what he was doing. Somehow he was available to those who needed him the most at the time they needed him the most. It didn't matter to Jesus that he was climbing the charts of popularity In fact, on this particular day, he was being pressed hard by this crowd, literally like grapes in a wine press. Voices, faces, grabbing hands. Everyone wanted a piece of Jesus, but the only person in that crowd to really touch Jesus was this lonely woman. And what a woman she was or wasn't. She was an utter social and religious outcast. Why do I say that? Because she wasn't a perfect specimen of the human race. Far from it. She had a defect, and she was summarily discarded as useless. The gospel writers tell us that this woman had suffered 12 years of constant bleeding, which, according to Leviticus chapter 15 and verses 25 to 33, made her perpetually unclean. I guess you could say this woman was the ultimate poster child for the COVID 19 like response of our society. Well, she couldn't worship with her friends, she couldn't hug her own children. She couldn't hug her husband if she had one. She was not supposed to be out in public. Anything and anyone she touched became unclean. Now, how much do you think that she longed for companionship? As much as we do right now? Or you do? How lonely do you think that she was? How desperate do you think her soul was to connect with people? I can hear her hushed inner cry, like the words etched in Judy Bucknell's diary. I'm alone, and I want to share something with somebody. But I can't help but notice a striking contrast in Luke's detailed account. In Luke chapter 8, in verses 41 to 43, listen to what he writes. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Here's Jesus. He's on his way to restore energetic life to a little girl who for her only 12 years had laughed and giggled and run and played with her family and friends while this woman in the midst of the crowd that came up behind Jesus had cried in agony and depression and loneliness for those same exact 12 years. What a contrast in the story. Mark chapter 5, verses 25 and 26 says that she had suffered a great deal at the hands of many doctors. She had spent every cent that she had on treatment and nothing could be done for her. In fact, she had only gotten worse. So for 12 years, she agonized with a broken heart. Not to mention a broken body. Now, the Jewish Talmud actually suggested 11 different cures for the condition which she had, some of which were really strange and superstitious and unbelievably humiliating. I'll bet she tried every single one of them. Things like carrying the ashes of of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and in a cotton one in the winter. Or maybe she tried the prescription of carrying around a barley corn kernel that had been found in the dung of a white female donkey i mean these were the kinds of things that the talmud suggested people in her condition did and she likely tried it all but absolutely nothing worked the scripture says and I'm convinced that when she heard about jesus she probably just kept telling herself if i just if i just touch his garment i'll get well i'll just slip in unnoticed get a blessing and no one will know and sometimes that's how people approach the church, isn't it? Unsure of what to expect, suffering at the hands of so many other botched cures for their loneliness, they try to slip in unnoticed. And what this lonely woman really wanted was a new beginning. And somehow she sensed and believed that if she was going to get it, it would have to come from Jesus. What I want you to realize is that she is a model of human despair. She had no hope other than Christ. No one in this world had offered her any. She represents all those who look for relief and comfort anywhere they think can get it in the world and find nothing until she came to Jesus. She knew she had to touch him personally, even just his clothes, because seeing him wasn't enough. Simply being around him as one of the crowd wasn't the answer either. She had to personally touch him. And I want to tell you something, people still need to touch Jesus. And we, the body of Christ, are the primary conduit for a hurting, broken world to make that connection. But we need to be in touch with him in order to be that conduit to others. Our availability, both to Jesus and to people, can make or break that connection. Every single one of us needs to admit that fact. And my question is, are you connected to Christ? Are you making that connection? Are you in touch with Jesus right now so that you can be in touch with others who need to touch him? I have to touch him, we have to touch him for ourselves. And when we do, we're never quite the same after that, are we? And that gives us the ability to make Jesus' love available to those who need it the most. I believe the first thing that this woman would identify as the first step of her becoming whole was that she sensed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was available to outcasts. Are you? Are you? Are we as a whole? I wonder what this woman would have to say to us today. We who are so embroiled in the battle for getting everything that we think out into the public on, on Facebook, I'm wondering if we even really think about those around us that are hurting and somehow we can be creative In touching those that don't even have online access I wonder what this woman would have to say to us today you want to know what I think she'd say that Jesus was available to me but beyond being available I think she'd say that Jesus also was approachable Mark chapter 5 Beginning in verse 27, we read, After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, If I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now think about it, though. What is the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? What does it say in the law? Well, you know it. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. But you know what? Rabbis in Jesus' day prided themselves on being unapproachable. They considered themselves so close to God that common sinners and lepers and the unclean dare not get too close. The fact that this woman approached Jesus to touch him is absolutely amazing. It was a complete scandalous act by her. Jesus was identified as a rabbi. It was a rabbi's job in those days to make sure that the law was understood and followed. This woman was considered unclean. It was her job to avoid everybody, especially rabbis. A rabbi was the last person in the world that an unclean person wanted to see in their midst. For an unclean person to get near a rabbi was really to open yourself up to all kinds of scrutiny and to get hammered for breaking the law. Now, the irony about this scene, as one writer points out, is that the only rabbi that this unclean woman could approach was God himself. What was it about Jesus? What quality did he emanate in his life that the unclean felt that they were allowed to get close to him? He was eminently approachable. Where were the other rabbis in that day? Didn't they remember the command to love God and their neighbors? All they could focus on was keeping themselves separate. Stay clean, stay clear. The more religious the rabbis became, the less approachable they were. And you know what? We have that same problem in the church. And I grow tired of finding myself sometimes falling into this pattern. And one of my favorite authors writes these words. He says, I wonder whether when these teachers of the law first signed up as young men to devote themselves to a life of service, they had warm hearts for God and others. Weren't they, in fact, motivated by love? But over time, something happened. All their learning about Scripture filled them with pride. All their efforts at obedience filled them with disdain for the less devout. All their giftedness, filled them with impatience toward those who were weaker. All their spiritual power filled them with contempt for the weak, and they became enslaved by a cold heart as an addict becomes enslaved by crack cocaine. And you know what? That is so fundamentally wrong, so unlike Jesus Christ, so far from the heart of God. As I study Jesus' life, I'm convicted, convicted to the core by the truth that true spirituality makes a person more approachable, not less. And as one author put it, Jesus is the most approachable person that ever lived. One of the most diagnostic questions I can ask myself is, quote, am I becoming more or less approachable? How available am I to the people in my little world. Anne Lamott cut straight to the heart of it when she said these words. She wrote, You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. What a scathing rebuke that is. In this context, I think Jesus might have agreed. Far too many Christians walk around as if they were wearing this neon sign on them that says, don't touch. Yet the Gospels are chock full of stories of people who sought out Jesus to touch him or to be touched by him. Children, lepers, prostitutes, even doubting disciples like Thomas. And Jesus let them touch him flat-out rebuking those who raised their eyebrows about it. Their whole outlook was wrong, according to Jesus, and oftentimes so is ours. The text says that when this woman touched his garment, her recovery was instant. I know of no self-proclaimed faith healer that can do this. She was healed without a word. It's interesting that, according to Jewish teaching, her touch should have made him unclean. However, it was that touch that cleansed her. This woman didn't infect Jesus with her sickness. Instead, he infected her with his holiness and healing. His life was contagious and infectious. That One writer refers to this as what might be called the immaculate infection. And being a former Roman Catholic, I love that thought. There was something infinitely stronger than her uncleanness that was working here in this text. What Jesus possessed was so powerful that her uncleanness, uncleanness simply could not coexist with it. Mark chapter 5 in verse 29 says that when she touched his garment, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And that word affliction literally, in the original language, refers to a whip or a scourge. And that's what it's like for an outcast. They feel like they're tied to a whipping post. And for 12 long years, that's what this woman had to live with. But after touching Jesus, however, she felt like a fresh change of clothes. I got to ask you, shouldn't we be making people who are far from God feel just like that? Shouldn't we be bringing them closer to and able to touch Christ? Shouldn't we, the church of Jesus Christ, be cutting them loose from their whipping post instead of lashing them harder to it? John Ortberg writes these words. He says, sin and suffering are not all that is contagious. Thank God. So is enthusiasm and laughter and faith itself. get around someone who has those things and you discover they're very catching. Contagion works both ways. The secret of spiritual life is not to isolate yourself from sin and suffering. That would be impossible even if we wanted to. The secret is to be so filled with the life of Jesus that in touching the world, instead of its infecting us, we infect it. Jesus infected people with his life. Why? Because he was available to people. He was approachable. And he allowed himself to come in contact with hurting, broken people, unlovely, unclean to the rest of the religious world without the fear of him being contaminated. He genuinely loved them. And because he loved them, he paid attention to them. If this woman were here today, that's what I think that she would say. I think she'd say something like, My life was changed because Jesus was available, because Jesus was approachable, and thirdly, because Jesus was personal. Again, in Mark chapter 5, verse 30, immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeded from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And he looked around to see the woman who had done it. This crowd was pressing in on him. In the midst of all this chaos, she tries to slip away unnoticed as a nameless face in the crowd, but her touch stopped Jesus in his tracks immediately. He turned around and he asked one of the greatest questions ever, who touched me? Now I've often wondered what the tone of voice was that he used. You can't get that from the scriptures. Was it firm and demanding, like, who touched me? I like to think it happened more like this. Jesus is walking and the crowd's pressing in on all sides and all of a sudden his facial expression changes. And he stops and he says to Peter, hey, wait, 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 Peter, wait a minute. Someone touched me. And then he turns around looking into the crowd, searching and, and asking the question, someone touched me who is it who's the one who touched me and years ago when my wife and i were teens that was that was many many years ago now we attended a lot of concerts and i recall being crushed and pressed on every side by crowds waiting to get in the doors wanting to see somebody famous The voices, they were loud and the hands were pushing. Everyone's feet were being trampled on. Can you imagine the reaction of people if I had turned around in the middle of that crowd and asked, who touched me? Well, the disciples reacted the same exact way. They probably looked at Jesus as if he were a little crazy. You see the multitudes pressing in on you, Mark says, in this text, and you say, who touched me? I mean, come on, Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. But you know what the truth of the matter is? Let me tell you, in all those crowds at those rock concerts that I stood in and was pressed up against, that I stood in with my wife, I could always tell the difference between her touch and the press of the crowd. And so here's the best part of this passage to me, that Jesus knew the difference between the press of the curious crowd and the touch of a seeking soul. There was an unmistakable difference between those touches and Jesus noticed it. And he still does, by the way. This is an astounding thought to me. The authentic touch of a soul genuinely seeking Christ will stop God in his tracks because his love is intimately personal. Mark says that he looked around to see her in verse 32. Obviously, the woman saw him, but the beauty of Mark's story here is that Jesus saw her. To the rest of the crowd, she was invisible. To the disciples who were part of the so-called inner group with Jesus, she wasn't even on their radar. But to Jesus, she was top priority because Jesus' love is personal. He doesn't let people slip away unnoticed. His love pays attention. And you know, friends, we all need a lot more training and practice in this area of paying attention to people. I read once that attention is one of the most powerful forces in the world. Along with food and water, psychologists say that babies need the attentive gaze of a human face. And friends, nothing changes when we become adults. We still need to know that we matter to somebody. Someone once said one of the great miracles of life is that God pays attention to us. The greatest biblical blessing I feel I can speak to someone is this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious toward you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Now the NIV translates lift up his countenance on you this way. Turn his face towards you. To turn your face towards someone is to give them your undivided attention. That's the kind of love God has for us. The kind that pays attention. I believe this woman understood the heart of David's words in Psalm 27, in verses 7 to 10. Psalm 27, verses 7 to 10, read like this. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, And be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. For you have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. I love those words. The Lord will take me up, scoop me up, gather me up like a child from a crib. The worst possible thing that could happen in David's mind when he wrote this psalm was for God to hide his face from him. Look at verse 9. Do not hide your face from me, David laments. So how do you think the broken, lonely, and hurting people of the world feel when we Christians don't want to even give them the time of day. Now, I'm sure this woman, although she, she wanted the love and healing of Christ, was a little afraid of Christ's attention. I mean, Mark says that she came fearing and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She couldn't escape. His attention so surprised her that she almost couldn't take it. She knew that she wasn't supposed to be around him as an unclean person. She feared Jesus. She feared the crowd. In her mind, her life was over. Little did she know that it was really about to begin. What lifted her out of her pain was not only that Jesus was available, approachable, and personal, But something more, Jesus was impartial. Jesus was impartial. I like to read in Luke's gospel, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 8, verses 47 and 48. Uh, Luke says, When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, She came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. She told the whole truth in front of Jesus, in front of that entire crowd. Can you imagine that? They knew everything now. And I wonder what the crowd was thinking. What would you be thinking? If they were anything like a lot of churches, or even sometimes like me, they were probably ready to stone her for bringing that infection into their little gathering. We get pretty exclusive sometimes, don't we? Pretty clicky. Us four, no more. I've caught myself on more than one occasion trying to mask my smugness with so-called ecclesiastical concern. I read one pastor's story again this week that resonated deep inside me and reminded me of my tendency to forget what Jesus called me to. The writer says, Some time ago I worked at a Baptist church that had a sudden large influx of unchurched people. And they sometimes preferred music and language and living arrangements and beverages that came as an unpleasant shock to folks who had been around the church all their lives. So we brought in an expert, a New Testament professor, to talk about communities and grace. Someone complained about how she did not approve much of these newcomers. She complained shouldn't they clean up their act before they come to church? Well, this professor can get quite passionate about this subject, and he did then. This is what he said, quote, if you want to go to a church where such people are not welcome and never darken the door, you will find many such churches in any city. You may attend there if you wish, but who will welcome those who are far from church? And what about, and then from here, the professor, off the top of his head, whipped off a long string of adjectives I can only partly remember. What about the chain smoking, adult channel watching, playboy reading, whiskey guzzling, wife swapping, tax cheating, child neglecting SOB? What about him? Now, there was this long pause. People were not expecting that term from a New Testament professor. And then out of the silence, one of the deacons in the back asked, oh, you mean sons of Baptists? Who will welcome the sons of Baptists? Historically, we tend to place sins in two categories. The sins of the flesh, like lust, greed, gluttony, drunkenness, immorality, laziness, etc., And the sins of the spirit, such as pride, self-righteousness, Judgmentalism. Now, most of the time, we, you and I, are scandalized, as someone said, by the sins of the flesh. Jesus, however, was most scandalized by the sins of the spirit. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. He says, The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing, the pleasures of power or hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two, That is why, he says, a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute, unquote. Those are some steamy words. Jesus was impartial when it came to grace and love and forgiveness. And this text proves it on his way to minister to a synagogue official, he stops to help an unclean, unloved, unwanted woman. And before that onlooking crowd that was pressing in, he raises that woman to a position of highest importance. Notice what he calls her. He says, daughter. Daughter. That's an intimate expression of love and inclusion into the family. He speaks not as a man to a woman, but as a father to a child. Daughter, he says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. That's what it says in verse 34. Now, if Jesus hadn't proclaimed and affirmed her healing, that crowd would have continued to treat her as unclean no matter what she said. Her cure was total. It was instant. It was permanent. And before that crowd, Jesus cuts her loose from the whipping post and proclaims her clean in front of everybody. A true daughter of Israel one who was accepted and loved by God. How do you think that made her feel? I submit to you, friends, that that is our ministry. That's my ministry. That's your ministry if you're a Christian. That's what we're called and we're commissioned to do. And you know, I find myself constantly forgetting that. And when I don't do it, you know what happens? I place myself above my master and my Lord. When you don't do it, you place yourself above him too. But this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. Let me say this as I wrap this thing up. Take this home with you. You're at home now. Put it somewhere. Write it down. Inscribe it on your heart. Only the love of Christ can liberate the loneliness of a hurting soul. My friends, that's the truth of the matter. That's what we just saw in this text. Argue if you want, but there it is. I need to be cleansed. I need to be clean. You need to be clean. We all need to be clean. I read an article in Prism Magazine entitled, Follow Me, Jesus' Call to Service in Post-Modern Times. Mary Neighbor wrote words that I find very difficult to let go of whenever I read them. Let me read them to you. She wrote, We have not demonstrated at least to a convincing degree that Christian faith feeds the hungry, gives drink to the thirsty, provides transformation to the lost, and offers restoration to the oppressed. What are we so busy doing instead? She says, I'm tired of sermons and seminars. Talks and tapes, motivational mumbo-jumbo and messages, preaching and panels. I'm tired of small groups and cell groups and Bible studies and guided studies. I'm tired of talk, 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 talk. And I'm tired of constantly talking about my internal spiritual life and my personal piety and my individual relationship with Jesus. My, my, me, 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 oh my. And she says, because all the while, I'm decaying. I feel like a seed on the concrete, scorched in the sun, dry, cracked, drawing upon whatever moisture lies within. When I know that God has called me to dig deep, to stretch, to venture into the mud and sometimes smelly places, because every need I touch will replenish my spirit with Jesus' soul spring of life. She finishes, Jesus did not merely say, believe, for even the demons do that. He said, follow me a few dozen times. And still today, Jesus says, follow me. What does that look like? Well, I'm going to tell you one more story. Many, many years ago, after preaching on this very passage I received an email the next day from someone in this church who, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, brought this text to life. This is what they wrote Russ, thanks for preaching God's message yesterday. I'm still in awe to the way God moves. I have to share that I had a divine appointment with a homeless woman in. Augusta Kmart, Friday night about 9 o'clock p.m. My husband decided to take our daughter to a football game, so I thought I'd make a quick trip to Augusta to look for some women's work boots. And after stopping at a few stores, still no boots, I decided one last stop at Kmart before heading home. Well, I hurried to the boots, looking at the selection for a few minutes, and as I turned around to find a place to sit, right behind me was a woman sitting on a bench, sound asleep with her cart and trash bag, assuming it was her belongings, I stood looking at her for a few seconds, wondering how far she had walked and was she sleeping in a warm place before going out into the cold night. She was dirty, glasses broken on one side as her head laid almost in her lap and hands clinging to her stuff. I went into the next aisle and sat down to try on the boots, but as I did, the spirit began to work in me. I felt in my heart that I couldn't just walk away and so I asked the Lord what I should do. Reaching into my pocketbook for a piece of paper, I wrote, Jesus loves you, exclamation point, and wrote out John three sixteen and attached a $10 bill to it. And my thought was if she was still sleeping, I would just leave the note and money with her. Well, I went back to her, her head still hanging down to her lap, and I guess my thought went out the window because when I knelt down beside her, touched her on the arm trying to wake her, and after several attempts and wondering if she was okay, I finally looked up. She finally looked up at me with a stunned face and blue eyes I won't forget. And I asked her if she was okay, and she took, shook her head, yes. And I gave her the note with money and said to her, I'm sorry for waking you, but I just wanted you to know that Jesus loves you. And all she kept saying was, thank you, thank you, thank you. She didn't seem like she could talk or wanted to talk more. So I shook her hand to say goodbye. And then I squeezed, she squeezed my hand a little harder and said, happy day, happy day, happy day. With a big smile. As I walked away, she started saying, thank you, thank you, thank you again and again. As I drove home, I thanked the Lord for eyes to see and for a heart to feel a voice to speak, all of which the Lord gives to us. I thanked him for the appointment and that I didn't miss it this time. And I came home with a pair of work boots, but more important was the lesson of having my spiritual work boots on and using them. Blessings, a sister in Christ. Hey. Listen, as someone has well said, that's the kind of church Jesus came to create. I don't know where we got the other one that's so prim and proper. But anyone who reads the New Testament knows Jesus loved to lavish grace on the left out and the used up and the put down. This is the church the way it's supposed to be. A group of ragdolls, who have received love even though they know they don't deserve it, who then extend it to others because they refuse to allow raggedness to keep them from loving. Because love is God's signature. Love is God's signature. And grace makes love strong. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for such an incredible example in Scripture of how you deal with the lonely and the outcasts and the oppressed and the poor and the people that most of society just turns away. Lord God, I confess in my own life, and maybe there are others that need to confess it too, that there are times, Lord God, when I, when I just don't see it or I choose not to. Forgive me, Lord God, for those times. Lord, would you pour forth into our hearts this spirit that Jesus had, that we might do the will of God as Jesus did it, that we might love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and have that translate into loving our neighbor, every neighbor, no matter what they look like, smell like, dress like, or talk like, as ourselves. This I ask you, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and pray that your spirit would lead us. Amen.